This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. and higher filling it with song filling it with song they sound quite mad don't they it's happening I can feel it how would you explain it it's beautiful God it's God I say God how do you like that why it's preposterous Thank you very much. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator. The voice that guides the blind. Following up with your ears, but your mind. And allow me to take you back on fourth through time. Explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. This coming Monday and Thursday will be the 73rd anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. My guest today. Leah Steinberg is the author of In the Shadow of the Bomb, Children of the Manhattan Project. Her father was one of the scientists that worked on the atomic bomb. In this book, Leah Steinberg reflects on her life growing up in relation to the knowledge of the bomb and her father's involvement in the Manhattan Project. And she interviewed numerous other people whose fathers also worked on the Manhattan Project to develop the atomic bomb during World War II. I really enjoyed this book very much. There were a lot of really juicy things in it. And at the beginning of the book, you wrote, even though you were born after World War II and the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you deeply felt the contradictory forces of love and destruction that these forces pulled you in all directions at the same time. And growing up, you wanted to be the first woman astronaut or symphony conductor, a great artist or poet or brilliant scholar, but was immobilized by your desires and the world you saw around you. So please talk about how you saw the world around you and how those contradictory forces affected you and your life. Wow. Um, Well, I 
saw the world around me as being very conflicted. And I grew up in the 60s, so that was a very uh, pivotal time. There was so much going on. And my father and all people in my family were very accomplished. My father was a nuclear physicist, and he played clarinet and violin, and he was an artist. He did a lot of scratchboard work. And everyone I saw in my family was very accomplished in many fields. And so it was hard to live up to. And yet I felt if I didn't do something that was important that, you know, I just felt pushed that way. But it was hard to do. And so I, and especially during the, during the 60s, there's you know, I was involved with the anti-war movement and worked at Head Start one summer in high school as a volunteer and just uh, so much chaos around me in the world. You know, I still strove for those things, but I didn't know how to navigate my way through the world. And I think that having, growing up in a family that strove for perfection, I sort of gave up at a young age because I didn't think I was going to be able to get there. Where did you go from there? Where did I go from there? Well, I uh, went to college for a year and I dropped out as many people did in the early 70s and traveled around and had different jobs and went back to college and it was sort of a um, back and forth road. Eventually, I ended up getting a job after I graduated college in a sleep research laboratory at the University of Wisconsin, where I was, and worked in that field pretty much until I retired. But you also write poetry, and are you a dancer, or do you just like to dance? I just like to dance. Uh (laughs) I love to go out to shows and dance. But yeah, I've written poetry um, probably since the 70s off and on and when I ended up moving out to California for the second time in the early 2000s I got involved in going to a lot of poetry readings and being a featured poet from time to time and so yeah I love poetry. So how did that emerge out of your life? Well I don't know I just I guess wrote a poem one day maybe I had been you know, gone to with a friend to a poetry reading at one point. And also, I, well, I started listening to Bob Dylan in high school, and he was an incredible poet. I guess I always strive to one day <laughs> write lyrics, which actually I'm starting to do now. I'm taking a songwriting class. And I was really into the Grateful Dead, and still am. And those lyrics are pure poetry. So I just love the way it sort of encapsulated the world in a small, uh, beautiful way. Speaking of songwriting, there's a, a line from a song that you have in the book. There is such a long, long time to be gone and a short time to be there. Yeah, that's a line from The Grateful Dead. Yeah, I really relate to that because it seems that the important times and the times that are really meaningful are 
sort of interspersed a lot with dealing with everyday life and the way the world is and all the struggles that come up. This is something that you wrote as a child. I felt a pull inside me down into the knowledge of emptiness, the essence of ground zero, where nothing lives and nothing grows. How old were you at that time, and could you describe how that felt and what that meant to you? Well, I guess, <laughs> going into my personal psychology a bit, I did feel kind of empty, and I struggled a lot with depression in my life, and I guess I symbolically pictured in my mind the ground zero where nothing is, where nothing can come to fruition, and I guess I just felt that as a child. I felt that the pull, the, the shadows of nuclear weapons and my connection with that, as well as growing up Jewish and knowing how hard it was for my parents to grow up Jewish and for the people who died in the Holocaust. And I, I guess I just felt I didn't, because of those two influences, I didn't see much growing around me or inside me. Huh. I think I'm four years younger than you, and mm -hmm. I remember growing up in New York City and feeling a kind of similar thing, but not as intensely as, as it sounds you did. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about your father and his work and how, how you felt about the work that he did. Well, my father started out as a uh, Ph.D. candidate in chemistry at the University of Chicago, which is where he was recruited for the Manhattan Project for the site there, which actually was working to find a way to separate plutonium. And actually the first chain reaction bombardment happened under the soccer stadium at Chicago. Um, and then he was recruited, as was my uncle, to the Manhattan Project there. And after the war was over, he, well, as my uncle, went to Argonne National Lab and worked there his entire career, uh, mostly in nuclear physics and nuclear chemistry. He would have been called, or, well, he was called the Renaissance Man then because he was so versed. He was you know, well-read and played music and did art. And he was typical of many of the people I talked to and many of the scientists that worked on the Manhattan Project and that he had extraordinarily high standards for himself and his children. Um, he was a liberal thinker, but I think that a lot of times he didn't want to talk about politics because he knew that that shadow of being surveilled, uh, surveillance by the FBI that a lot of his colleagues had. I remember one time 
well, a couple of times they used to try to get him to put bumper stickers on the car, like for Eugene McCarthy for president and anti-war bumper stickers about the Vietnam War, and he would never do that. I didn't really understand until I wrote this book why he stayed, or at least to the outside world, would stay politically neutral because of the surveillance that was going on with the, you know, a lot of his colleagues. My uncle was very conservative, but he was very passionate about public schools and ran for public school board when he was retired in his 70s. I think my father was like a lot of the parents of the people I talked to in the sense that he was very perfectionistic during that time of uh, the research in the Manhattan Project. They were so focused and all they knew is that they didn't know how it would work. They didn't know how to make a chain reaction. They didn't know if this bond that they were tested was going to work, but it had to work. So I think that we all grew up with a expectation of, you know, got to make whatever it is you're doing work. So talk about the imperative that your father and his colleagues were working under at the time and and also how how that may have affected you later on like and also your your awareness of of what was going on for him or what sense you were getting from him and how it was affecting you um well, he didn't really talk about, um, well, he tried to talk about his work to me in scientific terms, and I was not following very well. <laughs> uh, my brother and sister were much better at understanding and being interested in the science of it. But it was difficult to, I mean, I didn't, really know if it even though like I carried this sort of feeling around with me that how could he work on such a project um, I didn't really know until after he passed away and I decided to when the internet in the mid 90s late 90s was just getting big I typed in his name and found out about this large petition that scientists from the University of Chicago had written and signed and sent to President Truman, urging him now that the war was over with Germany not to use the bomb on Japan. And I asked my mother, and she didn't know about that either. So it was interesting to find out after he had passed away that he had conflicted feelings about the use of atomic weapons. When did you get the idea, and why did you decide to interview other people like yourself whose parents or fathers worked in the Manhattan Project? Mm -hmm. um, well, the idea sort of came to me around 1983, even though I didn't do anything for another 10 or 12 years. I had met my cousin at a very large anti-nuclear march in New York City. Which cousin? Uh, Daniel Abraham. Oh, that was one of my favorite parts of the book. I, I really enjoyed that conversation you had with him. Oh, great, yeah. He was a cartoon. He was a lawyer, but he's also a cartoonist, which he had done 
since a young age. And we got back to his apartment, and he took out his drawing pad and made a picture of a fetus inside an atom bomb and wrote Children of the Manhattan Project and said, well, we could have had our own group at the march. And he tore it off and gave it to me. And he later said that he didn't remember even drawing that. But that kind of stuck with me, and I eventually started thinking it would be really interesting to talk to other people who had the same family dynamic and legacy of having a parent who worked on the bomb. And I kind of went back and forth on it for a really long time. I did a couple interviews and then decided I didn't want to go farther, and um, then something would happen and I'd be out meeting at a party or an event and somebody would be bringing up the topic and I said, oh yeah, I started working on this book. Oh, my father worked on the Manhattan Project. Oh, really? Okay. It was it was kind of almost like the universe wouldn't leave me alone about it. <laughs> and so eventually I kind of dove into it more and I joined a writing group how to write up these interviews and then people in my writing group said well you know you have to put yourself in the book it's like oh no not really I don't want to do that and it's like well it's your book oh okay so um, anyway that's when I kind of started writing more little chapters that were kind of memories and memoirish type of writings and it took me a long time to figure out how to put it all together but at one point, I just felt like if I do nothing else in my life, I must finish this book. So it was a very strong feeling of direction, if not by me, of <laughs> whoever. <laughs> mm-hmm. So as you were interviewing other children of the Manhattan Project, as you, as you subtitled your book, what did you discover about yourself or... What did you learn about, I mean, was, were there common threads in each other's lives that you were unaware of within yourself? And, mm-hmm. and were there any, any things that surprised you about what you learned? Um, yeah, I think that one of the common threads was a feeling that all these people who I interviewed, their parents were very kind of, tough on their kids in the sense that they really worked very hard and strived towards doing things perfectly correctly and that this was, you know, sort of a common theme. One other theme, I think, was that we were taught in a way to look at the world to question to not just take what was offered, but to look deeper and to make connections between things towards understanding the world at a deeper level. You have a whole chapter on a dream that you had in November of 2011 Mm -hmm. that I found very interesting, Mm -hmm. that sort of blended with your waking reality. And I'm really curious to hear you talk more about that dream and how it related to your, your feeling about your outward or 
your inward waking reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a extremely powerful dream. It was like for the next day or so, I was walking around feeling like, you know, it was so vivid and so clear and that I would, had really been there. And to kind of say it in a short version, it was um, going with, my father and other of these scientists, and there was a group of us that were, you know, children, like in the book. And we went to the other side of the universe where they tested this new way of understanding how the universe actually worked and that the test was successful and that now they were saying this is what our passion was as scientists to understand the universe and not to have it go towards warfare and weapons. And then right after that, there was the article in the paper that they had found the Higgs boson at the laboratory in Switzerland. And it was as if I felt on some level that the spirits of these scientists were there helping them understand what was going on with these experiments and and to find the tiniest particle of the universe and so it was it was just all sort of tied together and what they said to me in the dream was this is why we did what we did why we went into science and there's no more need for nuclear weapons or doing that kind of testing on the earth anymore. And I just walked around feeling blown away by the dream and hoping that it was true. You use the line several times in the book about the testing of the first atomic bomb opening the door to the secrets of the universe. Mm-hmm. and that's somehow connected with the dream. Um, did you have a sense yourself about what the secrets of the universe were or just a feeling about it? Well, I think I felt that somehow the true secrets, the true reality was of wholeness and that splitting the atom was splitting apart, that it was a way to understand how it worked, but maybe my cat has something to say here. Um, She says, I know the secrets of the universe. I felt that it was somehow not right to be taking that apart that we should understand the wholeness of it and this is not speaking from any kind of scientific way but just kind of a maybe symbolic imaging of it there's a beautiful line in the book where you say for decades you ask the same question from multiple viewpoints is it possible to find my way, our way, back into fusion and wholeness? Mm-hmm. And could any psychologist, scientist, or musician from a dark star ever decipher this web for me? 
yeah, I guess it was a search for wholeness. And it's like my father in his later years, he worked on fusion power. And I guess have struggled a lot with that feeling in my life of separateness and division and looking for a way to to be a whole human race, find a way to bridge these differences and accept and respect each other's differences, but still work towards the betterment of everyone else. That was one of the things that I noticed about most of the people that you interviewed, it seemed, is that they, most of them at least, seemed to share that that kind of perspective, that mm-hmm. desire to make the world a better place, to work for peace, to in some way compensate or make up for what their parents had unlocked, you know, that, mm-hmm. that Pandora's box that they had opened up. Yeah, I, I believe that's true, yeah. And most people found a way to, you know, either work in a field that was going to better the earth or better other people, help the knowledge of what could be to make a better world, yeah. Did you or did you sense that the people you interviewed felt a major burden upon themselves for the quote-unquote sins of their father, if it could be looked at that way? Um, some, not all. And I found that very different right in my own family, where for whatever reason, I felt burdened more by this legacy than my siblings or, or cousins. And my cousin, Daniel, actually brought up, I, did, I didn't even know until I talked to him that my uncle had also worked on the H-bomb and he had a feeling of pride that keeping, I never even thought about it this way before, but the, keeping the H-bomb, you know, over all of these nuclear bombs that it sort of kept the Cold War going in the sense that no one wanted to drop an atom bomb because, you know, the next step was the H-bomb. But that, I don't think, takes away from, you know, wanting a world at peace. And I think that at the root of it all, most everyone, well, everyone I talk to, I mean, nobody wants a war, nobody wants destruction like that again. And working in different fields of counseling, environmental science, law, medicine, you know. As I mentioned before, everyone had a larger view of the world and its connections. And more of a sense of responsibility, understanding that? Yeah, I think so, yeah. And I remember while reading how compelling your cousin Daniel's argument was in favor, not only of creating the bomb, but also the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, and there's a line that you have about how you were trained to look at the negative side of things, but that that's just the other side of denial. And, mm-hmm. and I was wondering what you meant by denial. And then as I was thinking about it, I realized that I've been in denial myself. 
But I'm curious to hear about what you meant by by that. Sometimes I think that um, people look at the dropping of, of the bombs. I mean, it did end the war, and there is the argument that many more people would have died in the battle in Japan, and that's certainly a valid argument. But then not seeing perhaps what the destruction was and how unfair it was to those innocent people who died in the bombing. And so I think if you, if one would say that it did end the war, you also have to balance it with what the aftermath of it was and the long shadow that. And this is not to say, too, that many of the scientists afterwards like one woman I talked to, her father on the bus back from the Alamogordo site when there was the test, the successful test, there was the mixture of, like, we did it, it worked, but oh my God, you know, we have to work now to not have this, you know, go farther. And many of the scientists went on to work towards that. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking with Leah Steinberg. She's the author of In the Shadow of the Bomb, Children of the Manhattan Project. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. As I was thinking about this notion of being in denial about the bomb, that there are different ways of looking at it, but one of the things that really struck me is that all of a sudden... Truman and his generals had the bomb, Mm -hmm. which gave them essentially the power to play God with many, many people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. I think that anybody who, uh, any nation that goes to war is playing God to a certain degree. It's just kind of was at a bigger stakes. Mm Mm-hmm. Especially now with with the hydrogen bomb and and that there's this potential not just to kill hundreds of thousands of people at once, like with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but but now to pretty much wipe out most, if not all, life on the planet. Yeah, well, that was the whole, uh, what was the movie? It was Peter Sellers. Oh, one of my all-time favorite movies, which I've seen so many times, Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove, and probably based kind of loosely on Edward Teller, who, you know, developed, he was the father of the hydrogen bomb. Yeah, I mean, the means to do it are here. Mm-hmm. It's just whether... You know, it gets turned around, and I don't know. 
I have a feeling I'm not going to see that in my lifetime. Humanity demonstrating some maturity? Yeah, that that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> which in recent times we seem to be going backward. Yes. Which is pretty scary. It's very scary. And that really reminded me of that movie because the subtitle of it, of course, was how I learned to, to stop to stop yeah. worrying and to love, and the, love bomb. the bomb. Right. It was right. very sardonic, but it was yeah. actually so directly related to all the issues around the bomb in, in a rather profound way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the end, when the, the pilot is kind of like a cowboy kind of guy, gets off and, you know, like he's riding a horse on <laughs> uh-huh. um, that's going to go down, and then they're going off all over the world, and, well... And there were lots of amazing scenes in that movie like there was a scene in the war room where a fight breaks out between one of his generals and the Russian diplomat and one of Peter Sellers characters says gentlemen there'll be no fighting in the war room right exactly and they're acting yeah. like children and and essentially that's that's I I can't help but think of humanity's <laughs> stage in its evolution as being in its adolescence. Oh, yeah. Well, definitely the United States is in its adolescence. And unfortunately, we have so much power in the world. I could ramble on about that for hours, but... (laughs) Mm -hmm. Talk about your experience of seeing the performance of Dr. Atomic. Mm. Yeah, that was an opera that I saw here in San Francisco, and it was about Oppenheimer and Teller and set right before they did the test. And in that Kitty Oppenheimer, his wife, they were standing at the tower where they were going to test the first test. And she's standing in the shadow there of the tower and holding a baby, her child, and I turned to my friend and I said, that was me. Even though, you know, I wasn't born yet, I still felt that feeling of here's a new life that's just come into the world and we're standing, I was standing, I was being held as a baby in the shadow of this destruction. Speaking of that monument, that pyramid monument. The obelisk, yeah. Right. Is that at the White Sands? Yes, it's in White Sands. It's mm-hmm. outside of the town of Alamogordo. It's right. actually in a military base, and it's open to the public only twice a year, like two weekends a year, and you have to be escorted in. And it's just a desolate site where, where they did the first test. And the obelisk memorializing it is right on the site where the tower was that held the bomb. And you went there relatively recently? I went there, like, I think it was 2004. I went with Dana Mitchell, who had been a child at Los Alamos. His father was one of the assistant directors under Oppenheimer. And after the test, his father... He was only 11 years old, and his father 
took him to see the fight just maybe a month afterwards. And I was kind of appalled. He took you there? I mean, what was he thinking? It was, wasn't it pretty radioactive? And he said, oh, well, we didn't stay very long. But I met him. I had met him at the 60th anniversary of the Oak Ridge reunion on the 60th anniversary of the Manhattan Project. And I interviewed him and then kept in contact with him and asked him if he would like to meet and go together to the site. And when we were at the obelisk, there was a lot of people there, and he explained his experience of being a child and seeing the destruction of the site. He says, my father wanted me to see the actual test site because he didn't think that words or pictures could describe it. He also wanted me to see the destruction, fortunately, without Hiroshima bodies. The desert brush that we are looking at now was falling over sideways by the wind of the blast waves from the bomb, and then the tremendous heat fireball and the infrared radiation which charred all the bushes and trees in place. As we approached this area, all the bushes leaned out in a radial direction from ground zero point. They were charred in place, and they looked like something out of Transylvania. That was scary, very scary stuff. And he also talked about how all the area had turned into sort of this almost black pavement, which they named Trinitite after Trinity site, and it was what the blast turned into. They say that you can still find little pieces. I think they've cleaned them out mostly, but it was the aftermath of the blast. At one point in the book, you described the altering of uranium-238, which is naturally occurring, to uranium-235, which has very unique radioactive properties, Mm -hmm. reactive properties, which allow for this nuclear chain reaction that can cause so much damage from such a small device. Mm Mm-hmm. I was fascinated by that because I had actually not come across that before. Mm. And it just seems, I mean, it's hard to put into words how we can take something and alter it in a way that can create so much destruction, Mm -hmm. such inconceivable destruction. Yeah. Well, actually, I I am not really good at explaining. I mean, I I researched it so I could, you know, be accurate about it, but I'm not really good at explaining the science of it. But from what I understand, these kind of things, like, happen out in the universe a lot. And these, you know, explosions and changing. And so this was sort of simulating that in a way. But... I think this is what you were talking about when I talked about the uranium and it being like 99% U-238 and 7 tenths of 1%, that is U-235, is the part that can be split and cause fission. Mm-hmm. And it just boggles my mind to be working with something that is so infinitely tiny and that you can't even really see and can only be traced to know that it's actually there, that they were able to 
take that and, you know, find seven-tenths of one percent of that and use it to make a chain reaction. I mean, it's mind-boggling. <laughs> yes, exactly. And this isn't in the book, but I remember that there were, some of the scientists were concerned that it would be a completely uncontainable chain reaction, mm-hmm. that it, it would actually destroy the whole world. Yeah, well, there was the fear that it would, you know, set fire to the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But they were, they, they were so afraid that the Germans were working on the bomb and mm-hmm. would, would get there first, and that justified right. what would otherwise be considered to be complete madness. Right. There was, not all, of course, but there was many scientists in top levels and in lower levels of the project who were Jewish, and this was a major motivating factor for them to push to make this because they were afraid that Hitler would get the bomb and that would just be totally not acceptable. I mean, it would have been horrible. Right. They must have been afraid that that Hitler was insane enough to to try and destroy everybody else. Yeah. (laughs) Because they didn't really understand the repercussions of the bomb yet, did they? Mm, No, I think that that was their first glimpse of that happened at the test site. I think that was their first slice of reality when the people who were at the site saw how powerful it was. And they weren't even sure that it was going to work. So a number of them had really been appalled by the power of it and worked you know, against nuclear proliferation afterwards. And they tried to convince President Truman not to use the bombs on Japan. Yes. That was my first clue after my father passed away. I typed in his name in the computer and found a link to the Szilard petition from a number of the scientists at the University of Chicago saying that now that the war was over with Germany, they urged him not to use this bomb on Japan. And, of course, he didn't listen. But my father had signed that petition, and I was very proud that he had taken that stand. When you interviewed the children of the scientists, many of them said or had stories about how their parents detested Edward Teller, that they had a lot of respect for all the other scientists and their dedication, but that universally everyone disliked Edward Teller. (laughs) Yeah. What was that about? Well, it's kind of interesting because I had gone to see my mother down in Palm Springs. After my father passed away, she would go for a month to either Florida or Palm Springs in the winter. And... I was reading the paper, and I saw that Edward Teller was speaking there in Palm Springs. And I said, oh, you want to go hear him speak? And she looked at me, and she said, are you kidding? (laughs) Yeah, I think, for one thing, he was partially responsible for Oppenheimer losing his security clearance. He turned against him, and one of the reasons was that Oppenheimer did not want to go ahead and work on the hydrogen bomb, and Teller was very focused working on that. And so I think 
that a lot of the scientists saw how detrimental he was to Oppenheimer and what happened to him and the whole investigation by the FBI and in front of Congress and all. And I guess he just wasn't very nice. He wasn't easy to get along with. So a lot of people, a lot of the scientists did not like Teller. And I think a big part of it was his work to try to discredit Oppenheimer and also the work on the H-bomb. A lot of them just thought, you know, this is enough. And he was pretty much responsible for destroying Oppenheimer's reputation or yeah, his future. Yeah, he was. Yeah. So we're approaching the 73rd anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What are your thoughts about the state of humanity at this time and looking into the future? Well, I have guarded hope, I guess I would say. It seems that humanity goes through horrible things that happen and then we sort of come out of it and then horrible things happen again. And I would love to see a world where there's no nuclear weapons, that science can work to better the world, to work towards understanding climate change and reversing it. But, you know, I've seen enough to know that negative forces have a lot, seem to have a lot of power. And so I guess I have guarded hope that we can turn all this around and that there'll be a day when Trump is not president anymore and that we can really work to have humanity at peace without weapons and without feeling like we have to defend ourselves from other countries. But I don't know. It seems like it's been going on forever and in different formats, and I don't know. I hope, but I'm cautious. Mm -hmm. You called this book a labor of love while dreaming of peace. Mm -hmm. Has writing this book helped you in that quest for peace in any way? Um, I think personally it certainly has helped me face a legacy of this family I was born into and it's helped me deal with and feel that there are other people who understand how it was to grow up with this legacy and also I think it's helped me understand that I can't really judge history like before when I was younger I would think oh you know how could how could my father how could my uncle how could they work on something so terrible. And uh, I understand now more the history of what was going on then and why the project happened and understand that, you know, you can only look from a distance and you can't really know the pressures that were on people at that time and at any time. So I think maybe it's helped me to just grow up more and understand the world better and understand that there are so many different forces happening in the world 
that, you know, nothing goes in a straight line from A to B. There's many, many side roads. Mm -hmm. And apparent setbacks along the way. And apparent setbacks along the way, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Could you read a poem? Oh, sure. Which one would you like me to read? Um, how about Infinite? Okay. Actually, I just opened to that page, so <laughs> perfect. Okay, so when I actually knew that I had completed the book, I was able to write poetry again, because writing this book was so much different kind of writing. And so when I finished the book, I wrote this poem called Infinite. Deep in the desert sand, a hidden bunker is silent. On a cold cement floor, a small girl curls up next to a stagnant atomic creation. Never alive, never dead, wrapped in a repeating decade of a hallowed dream of limbo. The casing reflects nothing of its inner core, waiting to be either disassembled or released from its underground home. The girl wakes, walks unsteadily toward a bomb that points upward to a galaxy of infinite possibilities. She circles like an Orthodox Jewish woman slowly walking around the groom seven times in front of the chuppah. She wonders if there is a world where the dead do not walk next to her, realizes the irony, is grateful for the only song she has ever known, then dances in the crater where the universe was discovered in invisible tracings of a scattered promise. That's really beautiful. Thank you. Is that autobiographical for yes. you? <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, when you're talking about the little girl, I, I can't help but think of you seeing mm -hmm. yourself in there. Yeah, yeah. it was. <laughs> I mean, not literally, but, you know. Yes, I, I understand. <laughs> Symbolically. <laughs> Symbolically, just, you know, as in that cartoon drawing mm -hmm. of your cousin Daniel's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In many ways, you guys really were children of the bomb. Mm-hmm. Even though most of you were born after the war and after they were dropped. Mm-hmm. Much like people who are children of or had relatives who were lost in the Holocaust. Yes, yes. Um, I read the book Children of the Holocaust many years ago, and... That was one of the things that was an influence on me doing this book. You said that you weren't able to write poetry while you were writing this book. Mm -hmm. What did it feel like while you were in this book? I know that when I'm reading, there are times when I'm reading books that, that plunge me into such darkness that I realize that I have to finish this book and that if I don't, you know, I may never survive. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think I had never, except for my master's thesis, I had never written a long piece of, you know, nonfiction. And it was really difficult for me because I would bring, when I was in a writing group working on this, at the beginning, I would bring in little pieces and they would, you know, sort of be like long poems. And I would get the feedback of, what are you trying to say here? You know, well, it sounds poetic, but I don't know what you're talking about. And 
I had to sort of switch gears and switch ways of thinking and writing where it was clear what I was saying, which is not always the case with poetry. And so I kind of had to put that way of thinking and writing in the background. So it was, it was difficult. It wasn't like how I enjoy writing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But writing the sort of memoirish chapters was also very cathartic. So it was a good thing. And at the very end, you have a line from John Barlow that I really liked. <laughs> yeah. Let the words be yours. I'm done with mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sadly, John Perry Barlow passed away this last year, and I was at an event where he was, and I told him about the book, and he studied history a lot. And when I told him about this, uh, he said, oh, send me a copy. So I did. And he died about four months later, so I don't know if he ever read the book, but that was the line from Cassidy from The Grateful Dead that he wrote. And I felt like when I finished the book, that line kind of summed up how I felt about this topic. This is what I could give to the world, and that now it's like, okay, I'm not just holding this in as my own problem. Now I want other people to contribute to the conversation and really talk about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that line as well, and it was a beautiful way to end and to mark the end. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah. thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This is awesome. You know, I just did my first interview yesterday, oh. and it's sort of scary that you made it very comfortable. That's my job. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's kind of funny, when I was first going to college in 1970, I wanted to go to Goddard College because I just felt like it was speaking to me, you know, Mm. and my mother was like, no, you have to go to a regular college (laughs) and all that. So I thought it was quite karmically interesting that the first interview that was confirmed was from Goddard. Mm, That's wonderful. Yeah. Again, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. And that was Leah Steinberg, D. Leah Steinberg. She's the author of Raised in the Shadow of the Bomb, Children of the Manhattan Project.
Hey gang, it's the Magical Mystery Tour here on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Up next, we're going to hear from Valerie Kaur on the three lessons of revolutionary love in a time of rage and hate. And this is from a TED Talk. There is a moment on the birthing table that feels like dying. The body in labor stretches to form an impossible circle. The contractions are less than a minute apart. Wave after wave, there is barely time to breathe. The medical term, transition. Because feels like dying is not scientific enough. (laughs) I checked. During my transition, my husband was pressing down on my sacrum to keep my body from breaking. My father was waiting behind the hospital curtain, more like hiding. But my mother was at my side. The midwife said she could see the baby's head, but all I could feel was a ring of fire. I turned to my mother and said, I can't, but she was already pouring my grandfather's prayer in my ear. The hot winds cannot touch you. You are brave, she said. You are brave. And suddenly, I saw my grandmother standing behind my mother. And her mother behind her. And her mother behind her. A long line of women who had pushed through the fire before me. I took a breath. I pushed. My son was born. As I held him in my arms, shaking and sobbing from the rush of oxytocin that flooded my body, my mother was already preparing to feed me, nursing her baby as I nursed mine. My mother had never stopped laboring for me, from my birth to my son's birth. She already knew what I was just beginning to name, that love is more than a rush of feeling that happens to us if we're lucky. Love is sweet labor, fierce, bloody, imperfect, life-giving, a choice we make over and over again. I am an American civil rights activist who has labored with communities of color since September 11th, fighting unjust policies by the state and acts of hate in the street. And in our most painful moments, in the face of the fires of injustice, I have seen labors of love deliver us. My life on the front lines of fighting hate in America has been a study in what I have come to call revolutionary love. Revolutionary love is the choice to enter into labor for others who do not look like us, for our opponents who hurt us, and for ourselves. In this era of enormous rage, When the fires are burning all around us, I believe that revolutionary love is the call of our times. Now, if you cringe when people say love is the answer, I do too. (laughs) I am a lawyer. (laughs) So let me show you how I came to see love as a force for social justice through three lessons. My first encounter with hate was in the schoolyard. 
I was a little girl growing up in California where my family has lived and farmed for a century. When I was told that I would go to hell because I was not Christian, called a black dog because I was not white, I ran to my grandfather's arms. Papaji dried my tears, gave me the words of Guru Nanak, the founder of the Sikh faith. I see no stranger, said Nanak. I see no enemy. My grandfather taught me that I could choose to see all the faces I meet and wonder about them. And if I wonder about them, then I will listen to their stories even when it's hard. I will refuse to hate them even when they hate me. I will even vow to protect them when they are in harm's way. That's what it means to be a Sikh, S-I-K-H, to walk the path of a warrior saint. He told me the story of the first Sikh woman warrior, Mai Pago. The story goes there were 40 soldiers who abandoned their post during a great battle against an empire. They returned to a village and this village woman turned to them and said, you will not abandon the fight. You will return to the fire and I will lead you. She mounted a horse, she donned a turban, and with sword in her hand and fire in her eyes, she led them where no one else would. She became the one she was waiting for. Don't abandon your post, my dear. My grandfather saw me as a warrior. I was a little girl in two long braids, but I promised. Fast forward, I'm 20 years old, watching the Twin Towers fall the horror stuck in my throat, and then a face flashes on the screen. A brown man with a turban and beard, and I realize that our nation's new enemy looks like my grandfather. And these turbans, meant to represent our commitment to serve, cast us as terrorists. And six became targets of hate alongside our Muslim brothers and sisters. The first person killed in a hate crime after September 11th was a sick man standing in front of his gas station in Arizona. Balbir Singh Sodi was a family friend I called uncle, murdered by a man who called himself Patriot. He is the first of many to have been killed. But his story, our stories, barely made the evening news. I didn't know what to do, but I had a camera. I faced the fire. I went to his widow, Jagindar Kaur. I wept with her and I asked her, what would you like to tell the people of America? I was expecting blame. But she looked at me and said, tell them thank you. 3,000 Americans came to my husband's memorial. They did not know me, but they wept with me. Tell them thank you. Thousands of people showed up because unlike national news, the local media told Babir Uncle's story. Stories can create the wonder that turns strangers into sisters and brothers. This was my first lesson in revolutionary love, that stories can help us see no stranger. And so, my camera became my sword. My law degree became my shield. My film partner became my husband. <laughs> Didn't expect that. And we became part of a generation of advocates working with communities facing their own fires. 
I worked inside of Supermax prisons, on the shores of Guantanamo, at the sites of mass shootings when the blood was still fresh on the ground. And every time, for 15 years, with every film, with every lawsuit, with every campaign, I thought we were making the nation safer for the next generation. And then my son was born. In a time when hate crimes against our communities are the highest they have been since 9/11, when right-wing nationalist movements are on the rise around the globe and have captured the presidency of the United States, when white supremacists march in our streets, torches high, hoods off, and I have to reckon with the fact that my son. Is growing up in a country more dangerous for him than the one I was given, and there will be moments when I cannot protect him when he is seen as a terrorist. Just as black people in America are still seen as criminal, brown people illegal, queer and trans people immoral. Indigenous people, savage, women and girls as property, and when they fail to see our bodies as some mother's child, it becomes easier to ban us, detain us, deport us, imprison us, sacrifice us for the illusion of security. I wanted to abandon my post, but I made a promise. So. I returned to the gas station where Balbir Singh Sodhi was killed 15 years to the day. I set down a candle in the spot where he bled to death. His brother Rana turned to me and said, "Nothing has changed." And I asked, "Who have we not yet tried to love?" We decided to call the murderer in prison. The phone rings. My heart is beating in my ears. I hear the voice of Frank Roque, a man who once said, "I'm going to go out and shoot some towheads. We should kill their children too." And every emotional impulse in me says, "I can't." It becomes an act of will to wonder. Why? I ask. Why did you agree to speak with us? Frank says, "I'm sorry for what happened, but I'm also sorry for all the people killed on 9/11." He fails to take responsibility. I become angry to protect Rana, but Rana is still wondering about Frank. Listening, responds, "Frank, this is the first time I'm hearing you say that." You feel sorry, and Frank. Frank says, "Yes, I am sorry for what I did to your brother. One day, when I go to heaven to be judged by God, I will ask to see your brother, and I will hug him, and I will ask him for forgiveness." And Rana says. We already forgave you. 
Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is freedom from hate. Because when we are free from hate, we see the ones who hurt us not as monsters, but as people who themselves are wounded, who themselves feel threatened, who don't know what else to do with their insecurity but to hurt us, to pull the trigger or cast the vote or pass the policy aimed at us. But if some of us begin to wonder about them, listen to their stories, we learn that participation in oppression comes at a cost. It cuts them off from their own capacity to love. This was my second lesson in revolutionary love. We love our opponents when we tend the wound in them. Tending to the wound is not healing them. Only they can do that. Just tending to it allows us to see our opponents, the terrorist, the fanatic, the demagogue. They've been radicalized by cultures and policies that we together can change. I looked back on all of our campaigns and I realized that anytime we fought bad actors, we didn't change very much. But when we chose to wield our swords and shields to battle bad systems, that's when we saw change. I have worked on campaigns that released hundreds of people out of solitary confinement, reformed a corrupt police department, changed federal hate crimes policy. The choice to love our opponents is moral and pragmatic, and it opens up the previously unimaginable possibility of reconciliation. But remember, <laughs> It took 15 years to make that phone call. I had to tend to my own rage and grief first. Loving our opponents requires us to love ourselves. Gandhi, King, Mandela, they taught a lot about how to love others and opponents. They didn't talk a lot about loving ourselves. This is a feminist intervention. Yes. yes. <laughs> because for too long have women and women of color been told to suppress their rage, suppress their grief in the name of love and forgiveness. But when we suppress our rage, that's when it hardens into hate directed outward, but usually directed inward. But mothering has taught me that all of our emotions are necessary. Joy is the gift of love. Grief is the price of love. Anger is the force that protects it. This was my third lesson in revolutionary love. We love ourselves when we breathe through the fire of pain and refuse to let it harden into hate. That's why I believe that love must be practiced in all three directions to be revolutionary. Loving just ourselves feels good, but <laughs> is narcissism. <laughs> Loving only our opponents is self-loathing. Loving only others is ineffective. 
This is where a lot of our movements live right now. We need to practice all three forms of love. And so, how do we practice it? Number one, <laughs> in order to love others, see no stranger. We can train our eyes to look upon strangers on the street, on the subway, on the screen, and say in our minds, brother, sister, aunt, uncle. And when we say this, what we are saying is, you are a part of me I do not yet know. I choose to wonder about you. I will listen for your stories and pick up a sword when you are in harm's way. Number two, in order to love our opponents, tend the wound. Can you see the wound in the ones who hurt you? Can you wonder even about them? And if this question sends panic through your body, then your most revolutionary act is to wonder, listen, and respond to your own needs. Number three, in order to love ourselves, breathe and push. When we are pushing into the fires in our bodies or the fires in the world, we need to be breathing together in order to be pushing together. How are you breathing each day? Who are you breathing with? Because when executive orders and news of violence hits our bodies hard, sometimes less than a minute apart, it feels like dying. In those moments, my son places his hand on my cheek and says, dance time, mommy. <laughs> and we dance. <laughs> In the darkness, we breathe and we dance. Our family becomes a pocket of revolutionary love. Our joy is an act of moral resistance. How are you protecting your joy each day? Because in joy, we see even darkness with new eyes. And so, the mother in me asks, what if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What if our future is not dead, but still waiting to be born? What if this is our great transition? Remember the wisdom of the midwife. Breathe, she says, and then push. <laughs> because if we don't push, we will die. If we don't breathe, we will die. Revolutionary love requires us to breathe and push through the fire with a warrior's heart and a saint's eyes so that one day, one day you will see my son as your own and protect him when I am not there. You will tend to the wound in the ones who want to hurt him. You will teach him how to love himself because you love yourself. You will whisper in his ear as I whisper in yours, you are brave, you are brave. Thank you. <laughs> that was Valerie Kaur from a TED Talk. The title is Three Lessons of Revolutionary Love in a Time of Rage. Thank you.
that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.